Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Close, coming to you from the Great White North. I'm Michael Close, and I'm glad to have you with us. On this podcast, you'll hear interviews with magicians from around the planet. I try to ask questions designed to spark robust discussions, giving you information and insights you won't find anywhere else. If you enjoy these podcasts, I hope you'll stop by michaelclose.com and check out the products we have available. And now, let's get into today's podcast. My guest today is a new acquaintance, Christian Bischoff, a Swiss uh, magician and author. He has uh, established a very successful career as a corporate entertainer, having come from uh, academia. And we'll discuss that in a minute. And he has a wonderful two-volume set of books out called Diamonds of Performance, which provide, uh, at least as far as I'm aware in magic, a unique way of looking at the theoretical aspects that can improve your performance. And uh, I'm just delighted to be able to talk to him today. So Christian, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted. Um can you give us a little background, uh, where you were born, uh, grew up, things, parents, siblings, things like that? Sure. As you mentioned, I'm Swiss. So Switzerland is a lovely little country in the middle of Europe. And um, I grew up in a rather middle-class household. My, both of my parents are academics. My father was a historian and later became a PR consultant. And later in his life, he wrote books about history. And my mother is still active as a psychotherapist, and uh, she's she's amazing. She's got lots of energy, and both of them were very supportive of me uh, when I was younger and still um, are today and uh, in my magic, because they, at first, they gave me my first magic box set for Christmas, right? So, oh, wow. That was the first How old one. were you when that happened? I was about seven or eight years old. That's probably the age that most magicians got their magic set. But for me, it was a bit special because a year later, my younger brother, uh, he's about two years younger than I am, he got another magic box. And his was more advanced than mine. <laughs> and I was kind of jealous. And I had to find ways uh, how to persuade my brother, my younger brother, to lend me his magic box. So I learned from a very young stage that it it's very good to fight for your magic, to put <laughs> effort into your magic. <laughs> did so you do, that's what uh, got me started. Did you do any shows as a kid? Or just keep it as a hobby? Interestingly, I did not really perform as a kid magician because... It all happened in my imagination. I was so fascinated and captivated by magic, and I thought it was something something truly precious. And I didn't want to put it out there in the real world. I was so afraid that people could not find it as wonderful as I found it. And so I kept it to myself, which is kind of strange. I didn't really perform but then later, when I became uh, involved as a teenager in um, a school project about musicals, I started to perform in front of audiences. I started to dance. I started to act and sing. And I really, I really found that fascinating, the exchange of energy with the audience and the other performers. And I, I didn't make the connection to magic at that point yet. But at one uh, performance, I remember uh, the lighting designer of that show 
talk to me about magic because he was in the magic club. And I said to him, I kind of have an interest in magic as well. What's that about the magic club? And he said, well, just join us, just come to us and uh, you'll figure it out. And I went there, I was in Bern, uh, Switzerland. And uh, I, I was so fascinated that I could actually talk to other magicians who were more competent than me and who could teach me and show me stuff. And um, I still remember my first mentor, Christian Scherer, card magician, uh, award-winning card magician, who took me a bit under his wing, you know, and he showed me the moves and showed me Apocalypse, you know, the magazine. And uh, I spent some time at his house uh, with him learning the moves. And then I stood in front of his bookshelf, which was enormous. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of books. And he just casually mentioned that, well, if you like a book, you just, you can borrow it. You take it home with me, with you, and you read it, and then you bring it back and take the next one. <laughs> that's oh, so, wonderful i was so overwhelmed by that and that was wonderful and that's what where my love for magic books started yeah well that's great that's very very uh useful to have someone especially at a young age to to begin to mentor you and to provide you with the information uh that you need because uh uh for many of us uh in my case you know it was uh, a situation where you had to buy everything you wanted to, uh, you wanted to learn. I grew up uh, in the middle of the state of Indiana uh, with the closest magic shop two and a half hours away. And I didn't know any magicians. So it was simply a matter of researching it on my own. And at least back in those days, uh, magic books came out infrequently and you actually had a chance to sort of absorb one before the next one came out, which is, you know, not the case today, really. But uh, that's really a wonderful thing. Uh, you just always ahead. tell if a performer has put effort into his magic, right? If he had to, as I mentioned, like, quote unquote, fight for his magic and really put effort and power into it instead of just, you know, watching the latest video and doing it as the guy in the video does it. Well, I think, and this, of course, uh goes back to a thing that you mentioned in the book, which is that you ask the important question of what does this trick mean to me, uh, which I've always felt is something that a performer has to ask that question. Uh, the the, the fellow that I refer to a lot in that discussion is Michael Skinner, uh, the great close-up performer who worked for many years in Las Vegas, because Skinner didn't have a profound performance personality. He wasn't hilariously funny he wasn't particularly dramatic but there was an intensity of how much he loved the stuff that he was doing that came through when he performed it and i think the only way you can really develop that is if you put some time and effort into the material that you're going to present to people exactly and the audience can always tell they notice that on a subconscious level there are other parts that the audience will uh, instinctively feel like, as I said, the effort, but also if you respect the audience, if you even love the audience, if you love communicating with the audience, also, if you know about the background of the routines that you're performing today, if you know different versions, you don't really have to tell them about the different versions that you studied, but if you have studied them, it will show subconsciously, um, for the audience to pick up on. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so you decided to pursue a career, um, in business, uh, 
from the academic side, you got your PhD in economics. Is that correct? That's that correct. Yes. yes. And then you taught, you taught for a while uh, at the collegiate college level. At the college, at university, yeah. I, I specialized in business administration, in strategic management, and I had the opportunity to do a doctoral thesis there. Um, and I, uh, I had a special deal with my supervisor because at the end of my MBA, you know, I, I had to decide, should I proceed in academia or should I now start a normal job? And I said, if I stay at the college, I can maybe even have more time for magic and, and still to do something scientific and interesting and, and, and wonderful. And I had a special deal with him. I offered him the following. I said, Look, I know what you want from me. You want me to do the teaching for the MBA students, the corporate strategy courses and the statistical courses, et cetera. I will do all of that like all the other research assistants do. And I know you want me to do research on, you know, diversified companies and uh, gather the data, analyze the data. I will do all of that. And you only have to pay me half the salary than mm -hmm. usual because what I... On the other hand, would like to have is half the time off. I ah. would like to have half the time free, of course, to do the magic. Uh, he knew about magic, of course. And for him, it was a great deal because he received the same output, the same work for half the salary. <laughs> and I just had to be very efficient in my work and then have enough time to do magic. So it was a classical win-win situation. And it, it worked beautifully for me and for him and for, for everybody. I finished the, the PhD very successfully and had time during that period to, um, ex to grow as a magician as well and to mm -hmm. develop my client relationships. And then, interestingly, at the end of this PhD period, my colleagues at university, they started to apply for their corporate careers, for their corporate jobs. And I, again, was at the position where I needed to decide where to go with my life, which route do you take? Are you going to go into the corporate world and, uh, or are you going to continue with magic? And uh, it was, it was a difficult decision. And then my colleagues pressured me. They said, now, now it's the time Christian. Now you have to decide because uh, you have to apply for these jobs and in insurance and in consultancy in the banking industry, et cetera, because then you can have a career in the corporate world. You can climb the corporate ladder and that's when it struck me. I said to them, guys, I don't want a ladder. I want wings. <laughs> wow. That's great. How old were you when you came to that decision? 30. Yeah. 30 years. Did you ever but, consider just staying uh, with, in academia and just teaching? Yes. Or are those I, positions difficult to uh, attain? Yeah, of course, it's difficult, but magic is difficult as well. Everything is difficult. But if you dedicate yourself to it, then nothing is impossible, as they say, right? So yeah. this, this would have been an option, but I felt in my heart that magic was my main passion, was really the one thing that I truly, truly loved. And when you're 30 years old, you've had time to grow. You're, you're really grown up at that time, right? You're not yeah. stupid young person yeah so you you know what really matters to you and i decided to follow my passion and uh, that was a great decision for me and for my life well you had the uh, the benefit that that many who decide to pursue magic as a profession uh, don't have which is you understood the business aspect of it 
and what it takes to actually try to make a living in that uh, particular situation. Plus, uh, since you come from, uh, you know, the study uh, uh, academically, the study of businesses and how they work, you certainly have the ability to speak to those organizations, because I know a great deal of your work is corporate work for uh, for major corporations. You can speak their language easily. You don't have to, you know, uh, so, you know, somehow grab a book and find out, you know, like business for dummies, you know, and figure out how uh, <laughs> how these how these guys talk, which I think is is because really the minute you walk out on stage, you're a magician, but you're also one of them, which I think is a great advantage. That's right. That's right. And yeah. they pick up on that very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's talk about. uh where the diamonds of performance comes from. Perhaps you could give people a little <laughs> background of, of how sure. you decided to use that approach. Yes, that's interesting because in economics, there is this one guy called Michael E. Porter, who is very important in the strategic management field. You can think of him as the die Vernon of that field. So mm. everybody knows him. He's uh, well-known. He has written classical books and he's well-respected. And he wrote one of his books is uh, The Diamond Model, The Theory of National Advantage. And it's about economic competition between nations. So mm. it's, a, it's a business book. Uh, but that diamond metaphor that really... That really resonated with me. I thought that was a beautiful image, a diamond. You know, it's a geometric, classical, beautiful form. And also as a magician, I can relate to that because of diamonds in the deck of cards. So that where the, that's where the term diamonds comes from. But then uh, also the thinking uh, of economics, I tried to apply it to magic because um, in economics, we try to have intangible constructs of themes, of topics, and then we measure them and we find out how they work in the real world. So let me give you an example. For example, customer orientation so or entrepreneurship or corporate success. So if I talk to you about these broad topics and if you've ever read the business section of a newspaper, then you probably have a feeling for what they could mean, right? Customer orientation, corporate success, that's about money, et cetera. So that's great, but that's not enough for science. <laughs> uh, right. If I were to ask you, what exactly does customer orientation mean? And what exactly is corporate success or entrepreneurship? Then mo many people will be at a loss. They can't really pinpoint the meaning, right. right? They can't give a really good definition of the... Uh, yes, of the, and it's similar in magic. You know, showmanship, naturalness of handling, charisma in a performer, deceptiveness of a trick. And most magicians would say, yeah, I know what a deceptive trick is, right? I, I know it when I see it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's not enough for a scientific approach. So what economists do is they develop a set of criteria that as a set, as different criteria together, they will zoom in or they close in and define that term more accurately. And then what is interesting for economics, then you can measure them. You can measure the customer orientation. For example, you will measure how many times a business will um, 
survey the customer satisfaction level of their customers, right? So that's mm-hmm. one criteria. Or if the manager's goals are linked to customer satisfaction value. So that's just two examples for criteria. And iMagic, um, you can do the same. You can come up with criteria, what is actually mean. So for, for example, naturalness, you could say, are the slides all performed in either an in-transit action or on an offbeat? That would help in terms of naturalness, right? Right. Or what is the level of, you know, tension in a performer while he's doing the move? Uh, right. The lower the tension, the better, of course, right? Yeah. So these are some criteria that you can develop. And then uh, I, I wanted basically to apply the same intellectual approach that I had learned for economics. I wanted to apply it to magic. If this, if this was going to be my profession, I wanted to do it real, right? With, with everything I got, my whole intellectual capacity, my whole passion, everything I can bring to the table. And so I started to um, analyze the literature, you know, draw, read all the books, read your books, Michael, read uh, Vernon's and Tamri's and Ortiz and all the important books and combine them with my own experience of doing hundreds and even thousands of corporate shows and come up with criteria that I think are real world criteria on how to analyze magic, how to understand magic, how in the end improve magic. So, and that's where the book finally um, (laughs) appeared (laughs) over time. You know, I developed these diamonds, different diamonds. There's a trick diamond, there's a performer diamond, there's a situation diamond. So these are all sets of different criteria that will help you improve your magic and grow as a performer. Right. Um, Well, perhaps as an example, um, just so people can get a feel for this, uh, why don't you describe what the three different diamonds, uh, what the, uh, I'll use the word topic, but that isn't quite right. The the diamonds. uh, Yeah. The, the, the three different uh, diamonds each represent a, uh, a different, facet or a different aspect of performance um so you have uh, you have the trick you have the performer and is the third the venue is yes there's a situation and the venue is part of the situation right right just to give you an overview any magical performance and this is great because it's applicable to any kind of magic whether you do cards whether you do mentalism big stage illusions or birthday parties for children this is applicable to all categories and kinds of magics because every magician performs a trick. So there's the first diamond, the trick. Uh, and then there's a performer doing the trick. That's the second diamond, the performer. And then there is a situation where this takes place. That's the third diamond, the situation diamond. And he, every performance of magic has these three facets, the trick, performer, and the situation. So this is the three diamonds. Now, each of those diamonds has corners, uh, sets of criteria that you can look at. So for example, in the trick, the four corners of that diamonds, diamond are impossibility, aesthetics, relevance, and dramaturgy. Now, when I was very young and starting out in magic, I always wanted to fool 
people really badly. You know, this was all about impossibility. I thought if I can fool them, really, really fool them, then I've done my job. And only later in life, I realized, yeah, that's important because if it's not fooling, if it's not impossible, then it is not magic. Might right. be pantomime or ballet or whatever. It's not <laughs> magic. <laughs> so that's important, but it's not enough. Uh, it's good to have the three others as well. And let me just briefly mention what they mean. So aesthetics, what does it mean? A trick needs to have an appeal for the senses in the audience because we want to see something beautiful or we want to hear something beautiful. So if you have pictures on stage, like choreography or certain geometric shapes, uh, then this, these are photographic moments, as I call them in the book, that will burn themselves into the memory of the audience. They will remember those moments, those visual striking moments. For example, I have a trick where the entire audience will throw up cards into the air. You know, everybody doing a trick together. And this image is, is a photographic moment because everybody yes. remembers, wow, there are cards flying all around me. It's amazing. Uh, and then auditory appeal. It can be music or beautiful language or even sound effects or melody, whatever. So this, the senses, that's the aesthetical part. Now let's, so we have covered impossibility. If you covered aesthetics, now let's move on to relevance. And you already touched on that. That's very important because a magical trick is great if it has some meaning to the lives of the audience, some real meaning that people can say, hey, this means something to me and my life. I can relate to this. For example, if a trick deals with the uh, the theme of romance or you know money, losing money, gaining money, or danger, putting your life in danger, that's just general human relevance. Everybody can relate to that. Everybody has been in danger. Everybody has had romantic feelings, so everybody can relate to that. But it doesn't stop there. If you have a trick that might have a relevance to just a specific group of people, like in the corporate world where I perform, like a company, yeah, they all have, they all sell the same product. And if you do a trick that will highlight their product, then they will be interested in it because they work with that product every day. Sure, sure. Or if you yeah. if you work as a birthday party magician, then you do a trick with the birthday child. Everybody knows the child and knows uh, their hobbies or their characteristics, and you do a trick with that. That's really relevant. Right. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think I've referred to it as, as an attempt to, to transcend the puzzle aspect of a trick, because it's the puzzle aspect that separates the magician from the audience, which, of course, is the one thing that you really don't want to do. You, you know, uh, I remember one time somebody asked Penn, and tell her when they were talking about the fact that in some of their tricks, it looks like they're revealing secrets. And somebody said to him, whose side are you on? And he said, I'm on the audience's side. I'm always on the audience's side, which is of course, you know, not the answer that they, I think they expected them to say, but uh, I know in my own repertoire that when I was uh, working in Indiana in the Midwest, you know, the pothole trick had an enormous amount of relevance because that's a trick you know, that uses something that everybody has experience with. And uh, 
Later on, I came up with a trick called the IKEA card trick, which deals with the difficulty of trying to assemble IKEA furniture from their horrible instructions. And uh, that's actually the most relevant trick I think I've ever come up with, the most relevant pattern uh, hook uh, that uh, I've ever come up with, because all I have to do is start the script for that, and people, they're all on board. It's an amazing yeah. It's an amazing thing, but it's also one of the more challenging things, I think, when you're looking at your repertoire is to ask the question, well, what is this going to mean to anybody? Right. Um, You can even take a third route here. You can say, what has meaning for me as a performer in my life? And then share something meaningful from you. Yes. So, for example, when I do magic, I have a routine in the book, uh, the the miser stream, which I think is a fantastic classical uh, plot. And here I share with them my background in economics. And I say, I say to them, look, I am an economist by education, so I know theoretically how to make money. <laughs> but now as magic has become my profession, the money is just much more fun. Uh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, the miser's dream itself has this enormous emotional hook you know, just built in anyway, satisfies that uh, great desire for, uh, gee, I wish we could all do that kind of situation. Um, let's talk about the performer. Oh, we have one more to talk about with the, um, oh, the, uh, the dramaturgy. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. So we, in the trick diamonds, we talked about impossibility. So briefly, there is things like, you know, naturalness and in execution and magic way construction and in transit action, et cetera, all to make the trick more deceptive. Then we had aesthetics, the sound and the, the visuals, and we had relevance, meaning for the audience's lives. And now we have as a fourth one, dramaturgy. And here it's simply the audience want to experience a story, a condensed version of life uh, with a beginning, middle, and an end. And ideally, this story can be summarized in a very brief plot summary in one sentence. Like in the Miser stream, this guy, he, he plucked coins out of thin air. He made money appear. That's one sentence, crystal clear, and you can convey the, the plot of that routine. And if you look at the classics, usually the classical tricks, they, they can fulfill that criterion, right? Yes. And um, so this is all about structure in, over time. There's things like callbacks, light motives, et cetera, that make the structure, the surprise, the suspense, the mystery, the curiosity more compelling, more interesting for the audience. Yeah. It's the whole idea of... of- no matter where you're performing, that's your theater. And so whatever you do has to have the aspect of theatricality uh, in in the whole thing. Um, it's funny about the, uh, you know, uh, of course, that idea of uh, that the spectators should be able to uh, recall the effect in, a, in basically a single sentence. Uh, I've sort of, uh, in one of my recent uh, publications, I think it's, uh, the Tom epiphany. Um, you know, a lot of people think that the magician is a, is the storyteller in, in terms of the relationship. And of course, our stories are a part of, of the drama of the entire thing. It overlaps into both drama and 
and relevance. But I think the goal of the magician now is to turn the audience into the storytellers. I think that's the whole, well, I think that's because that's exactly what you're saying. And so in everything we do, we need to leave them with a clear story that they can tell their friends about what they saw. And, and once you adopt that approach, you realize, well, they don't have to tell the actual story. I can manipulate them to tell whatever story I want them to tell, as long as it's a clear, uh, memorable story. So really you can get people to go out into the world telling the story of something that could never have ever happened ever, but they believe that it did. And uh, much of this goes uh, with the idea of altering. uh, It's almost like uh, the book 1984, the idea of altering the past, because if you alter the past, then you've changed the future. And that's basically what you do during the course of the trick. But uh, so I think that's uh, an interesting angle on that that hasn't been nearly explored uh, enough, but it produces some pretty amazing things. Like uh, impossible legendary effects, like the any card at any number by David Berglaus. Exactly, exactly. You know, when it works, everybody remembers it. When it doesn't work, to the then nobody remembers it, and that story never gets told. So the good news is, you know, only the successes get talked about. The other ones just get sort of, uh, uh, you know, lost to memory. Um, let's talk about the uh, performer uh, diamond for yes. a moment. Yes, uh, there I have uh, derived two sets of criteria. First of all, there is the performer person, uh, the human being standing on stage in front of the audience. And then there is his or her stage craft. So the person is, who is this person on stage? What's his background? So in the beginning of this interview, you asked me about my siblings, my parents, so people could understand who this Christian is. And that's the same in front of an audience. People want to know who this person is. They want to get to know him a bit better. I think you've write about this in your books. Yes. And, yes. And, and also there's what we already touched upon, you know, the characteristics, who you are as a, as a person, what's your worldview, if you can reveal your humanity that, so that you're not perfect you have your own faults and your own challenges and if you share them you relate people will more uh, relate to you as a performer as a human being so that's the person side to it and then there's the stagecraft and the stagecraft is just really it's craft it's how to communicate your thoughts your your uh, tricks to the audience can you look can you speak can you stand? Can you talk? Can you uh, walk on stage? That's all about it. And that's really a matter of craft. And I can recommend to anybody to take some acting lessons or improv lessons because it helped me tremendously. It opened up a whole new world when I started working with directors and actors uh, because they have a whole new approach. They don't care about the tricks. They only care about you. And <laughs> you have right. your tricks down already, but now it, you can work on your stagecraft. Yes. Um, and it's it's funny how how often that aspect of it is simply ignored by magicians, because for the most part, it takes them out of a comfort zone. They understand technique. They understand moves. They understand magic, but they don't understand the 
the tools that uh, have to be used in order to impart that information uh, with clarity and uh, concisely. Um, I know that, um, you know, one of the things that we do uh, with Fool Us as we work with the various uh, people uh, who are on the show, and we do a lot of, uh, of work uh, in pre-production, you know, just making sure that all of that shines as brightly as possible on television because television of course amplifies all those little rough edges and you know if somebody's wandering about the stage or you know they just can't stand still or or what have you you it's distracting uh when you put it on television and and you make this point in the book and which television has this is something i've learned over the uh nine years i've been working on the show is the idea that really television can only convey one piece of information at a time. And you mentioned this in the book in terms of if you're going to talk, stand still. If you're going to walk, don't talk. Um, and the reason that gets very confusing on TV is simply because of the fact that you're doing two things at the same time. Am I supposed to be paying attention to where you're going or am I supposed to be paying attention to what I'm listening to? And one of those is going to fall through the cracks, I'm afraid. Um uh, the other thing that happens with that, and this is a thing that a lot of magicians don't pay attention to, is just what information your stage setting is conveying. And, you know, if you have a, if you don't put things away when you're done with them or, or you don't get, you know, then everything that's still on stage becomes information that is going to, you know, when I, when I was working with, um, with Paul Gertner, when he was doing the, uh, the brand new version of the, um, of the cups and balls that he did where he ended up with all kinds of sponges and something stuff. I said, you need to get everything else except that last cup off, off frame. You need to get it off to the side because otherwise I got too much to look at here. It's, mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. a lot of stuff. So, I mean, these are things that I, I'm, I'm, it's fantastic that you, you touch on these subjects in the book because it's, it's not something that a lot of guys spend time with. And this reminds me of the moment when your trick, your performance is finished. What do you do? And do you immediately launch into your next trick? Because in your own mind, you already, this is done, right? You don't have this emotion of wonder because you're the magician. You already think of the next trick. But I think I learned that over the years that you have to have an assimilation pause at the end of a trick. So when you set, when you, you've worked so hard to deliver this effect, this mystery, this impossible moment, and the audience needs to absorb that, needs to digest that, will show their appreciation with applause, with oohs and ahs. And in, what do you do in that moment? Do you put away your props at that moment and already take out the new ones? Or do you actually share emotionally that moment with your audience? And I believe, for me, I, I want to take a moment with the audience to really bathe in that emotion together. If it's only a couple of seconds, I really want to connect with them in that moment because that's the essence of our performance, that sense of wonder. And I don't want to waste that uh, in a way by you know putting away my props at exactly that moment. I still have time later to put them away, but uh, that's really important to have this assimilation pause. And I think a lot of performers don't really know about that. And uh, I think it's, it is a big tip that has helped me. Well, I think the other aspect of that that's important is that 
if, you know, and, and I often say this to guys who have a lot of nerves when they're, when they're performing, they get very nervous. I, I say to them, look, you're giving the audience a gift. You're giving them the gift of seeing something impossible. And that's a really wonderful thing to do. When they applaud for you, that's their way of giving something back to you for what you gave to them. So do you just ignore that? Well, that's rude. So basically what you're doing is they appreciated you, you're appreciating them, and you have this this human moment, which I think is important. Uh, but yeah, it's absolutely excellent advice. Um, let's talk about the situation, because uh, as you know, I have written about this. In my opinion, venue is the overriding factor in terms of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And you have to be aware of that or you really run into trouble. That's right. You're absolutely right. And because the venue and, uh, you know, all the, the different diamonds, they are in relation to each other, right? The trick needs to fit the performer and the performer needs to fit the venue, the situation and the situation, the trick, etc. So in this model, in the diamond model, there are three aspects to the situation. First of all, there's the venue, as you mentioned. So where is it actually taking place, that performance? But there's also the audience. Who are the people, the social demographics? Who are they? And what is their mood? So it's three topics. It's venue, it's the social demographics of the audience, and it's the audience's mood. So... The audience's mood, you have to take this very seriously because you have to maybe adapt to that mood, right? Because mood can be very different. If you are performing in a theater, then everybody's eager to see your show because they brought a, bought a ticket and they, they dressed up to go out uh, to the theater and they're eager to meet you. But if you're performing like I am mostly in a corporate setting, uh, they might be really exhausted by all the PowerPoint slides they had to absorb before. <laughs> and they might be thirsty, they might be hungry, they might even be drunk or whatever. Uh, uh, or they would have bad news. I remember I uh, performed one time at a corporate event where management actually told the guests that they would have to let go a large portion of the audience in the next semester. <laughs> Right. They would have to let, and then, but today we still can celebrate together. And here's the magician Christian Bischoff. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. So that's hard. Good that's luck. a hard show. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. So you enjoy have to... the enjoy the show because a lot of you won't be back when I do this next year. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my. Yeah, that's oh. that's mood, and I think. Of course, it, it's trivial, but the better the audience feel, the better the show will be. And that means for me, I want to make, I want to take full responsibility for the, this venue and this, uh, this mood situation. So if there's anything I can do to help the mood, I will do it. Meaning I will talk to the organizer and if they were running over time in the previous presentations, I will talk to them and say, hey, let's just have a little bio break, 10 minutes. Everybody can go to the bathroom, refresh, and then come back. So that will help the mood of the audience. Or just recently, the last show I did, there was, there was a small room and there was no air conditioning nor, ven- nor any ventilation. And I just personally went and I opened some windows to let in some fresh air. So have the mood um, improved and 
You have to know about the purpose of the event. What are they talking before or after you about? You have to look at the program. You can, you can also ask the organizer, well, what's on people's mind today? And if you can refer to that, then you have some bonus points with your audience because sure. then they know you're here now for them. So you have to um, relate to the mood. Does it change? Um, I suppose it may not change what your opening routine or routines are, but do you have to instill those? If you have an audience that's kind of beat, do you have to then instill a little more energy in your performance and try to pump a little more energy in the room uh, by yourself? Yes, it's interesting. I I try to... So what this will determine would probably be the length of the show. If I can see an audience is really tired and exhausted, I will probably cut the length of the show. Um, uh, but I would also not try to overwhelm them with too much energy in the beginning. It's, I think it's best to uh, come with an approach of pacing and leading. So just first, you know, you get in sync with the audience by having a bit lower energy, you know, just try to don't overwhelm them and get in sync and then take it up a notch from there later on. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Good advice. You also offer in the, in the, first book i mean just some excellent advice about uh the equipment you need how to set it up and uh i mean just the nuts and bolts part of being a you know a traveling circus you know as you you know that, <laughs> that you, you know that where you and um i think that's really important i mean uh i got dropped into a situation where i was working some resorts in cancun some years back and um you know, several of the venues simply had the worst possible uh, situation to to get anything going. I mean, you had, we call it the trench or the moat, you know, where the audience is 10 feet away from the front edge of the stage. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. these are people who've been out lying in the sun and drinking all day long. And they mm -hmm. come into a nine o'clock show in a room that's at least cooler than it was outside. And you know, they're all asleep. It's, it's very, very, it's very difficult. Um, so I guess, uh, my, uh, my error was not being more on top of exactly what I was <laughs> walking into because it was, it was disastrous. It was disastrous. I once followed a, uh, uh, a sort of a native dancing troupe where they had torches with kerosene lit and huge drums and they did this for like 40 minutes, you know, of this nonstop blaring music and dancing. And they finished. And then the guy goes, and here's my close. And I walk out with my table and my briefcase, you know, and the audience just goes, you know, so long. We've we've seen everything we need to see. Difficult. Yeah, we've all yeah. we've all experienced yeah. that. I. I think there's a lot that we can do to just improve it, improve it a little bit wherever we are. So, for example, if I am at the room, at the banquet room, you know, and it's not ideal because there is a, um, a space of death, as you already touched upon, yeah. between the stage and the, the first rows, then I will have chairs put on the dance floor, extra chairs, and I will invite the people sitting in the, in the back to come sit in those chairs in the front for the show. And I will go to them and say, guys, there's going to be a great magic show. And I want to see 
want you to see it perfectly. And I arranged for some extra seats for you, VIP seats. And uh, please join me. And I actually invite them physically. I do this myself. I don't rely on any organizer or hotel manager to do this because it would never work, right? I will do it myself. And also if uh, people are sitting behind columns and have obstructed visibility, I will tell them before you can move your chair the side of the column because you will see better you have to actually you have to tell people to do that i even tell them if uh, if the sidelines are good but people are seated around uh, circular tables that of course means that half of the audience will have their backs turned toward the platform so i actually tell them at the beginning of my show that now it's a good time to turn your seats in the direction of the stage, just physically turn your chair. And I, if I tell them in a very uh, likable way, in a funny way, then they will actually do it. And this will help the show experience tremendously. And finally, if I have um, a VIP person that is really important to me, it can be that I invited, for example, my, my friend, or if it's an important business relationship, somebody who's really important or the boss or whoever, then sometimes they will say, no, no, don't worry about me. I'll watch it from the back. Don't worry. I'll, I'll just take care of the audience. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I will say to them, oh, yeah, yeah, that's good. But uh, I want you to see it really well. And I will make sure that this VIP for me has the best seat in the house. Yeah. The best seat in the house is in the first quarter of the room, not necessarily the front row, but the first quarter in the middle of the row. Yeah. And I will arrange a chair for my VIP to sit in right there because I know they will experience the show in the best version that I can present. So um, the thing that you've done with, with your two books that I think is so valuable is uh, because magicians have a very difficult time when you talk about theory uh, because magicians basically understand tricks. They, they, you can't talk theory to them and leave it at that. Because it's it's one thing to be talked about about theory, and the, but then the the question that arises is, well, how in the world do I apply any of this? And so the second book is tricks, and uh, two different sections of tricks. Uh, I, and the other thing that's in there that I think is really important is you you have a checklist. So as someone goes through and analyzes what they're doing, they can they can go through this checklist. Am I doing this? Am I, have I thought about this? What is this situation, which I think is great because it's, it's, you know, you could, uh, you know, make that up as your own little uh, spreadsheet or whatever you wanted using those factors. And for every routine you do, you can make a mark on how effectively you're applying each of these things. But then you give, uh, you give three uh, really good uh, examples of uh, well-known magicians, uh, Darren Brown and, and Mullica and, um, uh, David Copperfield with the flying routine and you break down what they're doing and you show how the, the various diamonds apply to all of those. And then you give away, and I do mean give away uh, some of the routines from your own performing repertoire and explain in, in really great detail um, exactly how you've applied those things to the things that you're doing. So it isn't just a book of theory. It's a book of theory applied which I think makes it uh, really valuable to anybody who's serious about uh, uh, learning how to do this kind of thing. I wanted to have real practical value with that theory. 
there's nothing more practical than a good theory, right? And I, I uh, drew on economics again, because in economics, we have a lot of case studies, you know, different companies doing these kinds of strategies and how did it actually work out? And I said, I can apply that into magic. I will analyze iconic acts that everybody knows already or can research online. David Copperfield's flying, Tom Mollica's smoking magic, Darren Brown's Q&A, question and answer routine. Wonderful, wonderful masterpieces of magic. And I described them from an audience perspective, of course, and I apply the theory to them because I think we can all learn from examples from the masters. And as you said, there is a set of criteria of a checklist. There are about a hundred different questions that you can ask and that you can rate yourself or rate another magician that you work with on. And then you will immediately see where your strengths and weaknesses are. But because Let's face it, not every trick is perfect in all the dimensions and not every performer has all the facets down uh, to 100%. We can all learn, we can all take the next step to the higher level. And these checklists will tell you where it is that you can improve, where your strengths are as well, because you can also um, draw um, motivational strengths from your, from, your, uh, from your strengths, right? When you know right. you're good at a thing, then you can, if you're in stressful situation, then you can rely on that psychologically and you know that you can cope with that. So right. that's very important. And then of course, I, you say giveaway, I share my routines and these are routines. These are stand-up routines for the most part. There is a miser stream routine. Um, there is a, a routine where I have everybody perform a shuffling ritual with the cars that are thrown into the air. It's a mass effect. Everybody experienced the magic for in their own hands at the same time, which is wonderful, wonderful. I have mental routines that you can easily customize to any topic or theme of your event, be that the corporate theme, the corporate values or the products or the, you know, the life stages of the birthday child, um, you know, their characteristics, anything that you want to convey, you can convey them with these skeleton tricks. And I actually share my real closing routine. This is the one routine that I always do in about 100% of my shows as the finale. And whatever I do before in my show, <laughs> doesn't really matter as long as you do that routine, the dream painting. <laughs> then uh, all is good. Life is good. And I share it for the very first time in the book. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Well, this is, uh, as I said at the start, uh, it's an extremely valuable resource. Um, the only suggestion, uh, you know, I had the uh, benefit of, um, before the book was actually published, of being able to go through uh, the PDF of the book. And you should see my copies of that and how much things have been highlighted as I go through, um, you know, and uh, I'm not suggesting to anybody that they, they buy these beautifully produced books and then immediately go after them with a highlighter. But I do say you may want to have post-it notes that you can mark pages of importance and, and things of importance. So you can go back and check it because there simply is uh a, 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 a lot of material uh, to absorb in these things. And it's not going to be a book you're going to read and immediately apply, but it does tell you how to apply all these concepts. And I think it can only help uh, 
to uh, advance magic in a positive way. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Um, well, that time uh, passed quite quickly, <laughs> didn't it? Wow. It did. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how that happens. Uh, my guest today, Christian Bischoff, uh, whose wonderful books, uh, The Diamonds of Performance, are reviewed in this month's newsletter and uh, links to how you can purchase those books. Oh, I wanted to, before we sign off, I was going to tell you, uh, have you, you're going out on uh, some German lectures uh, very soon, maybe even later today. I'm not uh, sure how that's going to work. But have you gone out and lectured to magicians before on this material? About um, eight years ago, I did one lecture at the Ron McMillan Convention in London, where I did mm -hmm. uh, had only a few you know, passages of the book already at that time. And I did a lecture there. But um, now, after all these years, now the book is ready and I'm starting the lecturing now for real. And I start in uh, in Germany. I, I already did a lecture in Switzerland where I live. And now I'm in Germany. It's a country next to it. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'll see where it will be taken from there. Well, I'd love to know your experience because um, lecturing on theory is always uh, a tricky process. Uh, I remember uh, some very excellent magicians who would do the first half of their lecture on theory and the second half on tricks. And the problem was, even during the intermission, there was never a chance to get all the ice scraped off the, uh, you know, the frost that forms over people's eyes, a lot of them, when you do that. Um, what I have found was the uh, the way to do it was to do the trick really fool them with the trick and then explain what theoretical aspects of that trick were responsible for the fact that they were so deeply fooled by. And that's how magicians, you sort of have to do the good trick to sort of slap them across the face and say, pay attention and then, uh, and then hook them and then, then explain. So I'll be interested to uh, find out from you how that experience goes. Cause it's always a challenge, not one that I think you're incapable of surmounting, but I know that it's uh it's always interesting to figure out the right way to get the information and still keep the audience uh, attentive and involved. I think that's an excellent advice you just gave. And I try to live up to it by just starting with a trick. I usually start with the miser stream, which is very energetic and has lots of different effects. It's really fun to perform. And, and it's a fooler. And it's a it's fooler. <laughs> it is a fooler. There's a couple moments in there that are just really clever and really great. Because I was wondering, as I read the description of it, well, how's he going to pull this off? And uh, and it's it's very good because you've done what's what should be done in an in an effect where the a routine, I should say, where the effect is simply repeated over and over. You vary the methods, and and that's really an important thing. It's an important thing. I'm not even going to talk about what those various methods are, but the fact that they are varied. So when you get to a very important moment in that trick, which uses a really I'm not going to say any more, but anyway, uh, it wouldn't. You probably couldn't pull it off if you hadn't actually beaten the spectators down mentally in terms of their ability to solve that problem where the coins are coming from. So I think that's a great routine to start with. I think that's a fantastic routine to start with, and it certainly gives you the springboard for just about everything else you want to talk about. So I think that's terrific. That's terrific. Yes, thank you. Well, Christian Bischoff, let's keep in touch. This was delightful. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much I for being it here today. I enjoyed it tremendously, Michael. 
Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Safe travels, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you. Take care, Michael. Thank you. This has been another conversation with Close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to tell your friends. Like us on Facebook at Michael Close Magic. Follow us on Twitter at Mike Close Magic. And visit our website, michaelclose.com. If you'd like to help support these podcasts, you can do that at anchor.fm slash michaelclose. In that way, we can continue to bring you high-quality content. Until next time, so long from the Great White North.